good morning. Uh, well, as we have been for the last couple of classes, want to start with opening and asking if anyone has any uh, evangelistic uh, stories or encounters this last week that you'd want to encourage the class with. No obligations to share, but just throwing it out there. <laughs> This is, yeah, this is not meant to be like guilt-inducing, um, so please don't, don't take it that way. <laughs> oh, um, all right, well, cool. How about uh, prayer requests? Hopefully we've all been faithfully praying for the folks people in the class have, uh, have brought up. If you haven't shared someone in a previous class, anyone you would like us to be praying for? So for Tom, it'll be Lewis and Curtis. Anyone else want to? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Happy praying for Jane as well. Absolutely, Ben. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. All right, so we have Lewis and Curtis, we have Jane, and we have Dan's, Dan's entire family, his wife, his children, and his grandchildren. Why don't we open in prayer? Father, we don't approach this topic of evangelism because we don't care. We don't approach it because this is a fun, trivial topic. Lord, we approach it because... It is ultimately what you are doing in the world, and it is the most important thing in the world. And there are so many of our loved ones, Lord, that do not know you, and it breaks our heart, family, friends, people whom we love as we see them rushing towards destruction. And I, I lift up a few of these names this morning, Lord. I lift up Lewis and Curtis, Lord, pray that you would use what's going on in their lives and Tom's influence to bring them to saving faith. Lord, we pray for, for Jane and her time at BYU, that, that she would not be further inculcated in Mormonism, but that she would see the truth, that she would see who the Lord Jesus Christ truly is and would repent and believe the gospel. And Lord, of course, we pray for Dan and his family, we pray for his wife, those three children and his five grandchildren. We pray, Lord, that they would come to know you, that they would love you, and that they would be saved. Bless our time this morning, Lord, as we talk about your sovereignty. This prayer only matters, Lord, because you are able to do what we are asking. And we, we thank you for that truth. It gives us hope, Lord. And I pray that the message this morning would further strengthen our resolve and our hope and our passion to see you glorified as you save your elect. In Jesus' name. All right.
right, well, as in previous classes, there is a handout. I moved it, it's actually on the table with the bulletin, so if you missed it, they are back there. Um, as we have often done, we're just gonna quickly summarize the prior weeks and then kind of go through what we're gonna talk about today. So prior weeks, we've talked about what evangelism is and what it is not. Uh, we have looked at what should motivate us as we gauge in evangelism, and we have seen that evangelism is fundamentally God's work, that our personal evangelism is part of that. It is a privilege, um, but it is only a part of God's overall work, not something we do in isolation or independently. Uh, today's class is on the sovereignty of God. In one sense, this class is really an extension of last week's. Uh, you can think of this almost as a part two. If God is undertaking a salvific work in this world where he's glorifying himself by bringing people to saving faith from every tribe and tongue and nation, then either, two scenarios, either God is in control and he's getting it done, or it's the success of the mission is entirely up in the air. Those are the two possibilities, and we're going to see today that God is in control, that there is no chance that this mission would be unsuccessful. He doesn't have a desired end in mind. He has one that he is inexorably, perfectly bringing to pass. So we have uh, five objectives today. Five, four objectives today. Counting is fun. Uh, we are going to first and foremost define God's sovereignty. Uh, then we're going to spend some time laboring over the biblical proofs that God is sovereign, including over salvation. Uh, we'll address uh, four of the more common, at least in my experience, common misunderstandings and objections to the doctrine, and then we'll begin to, to work out some implications for God's sovereignty. This is the last um, theologically driven class. I want to be careful how I say that. All the classes are theological, uh, but this is the one that's more informational, I should say. Um, after this, we'll start transitioning into more and more practical elements of evangelism. Um, now, it's possible that every single person in this room, every single person who's watching from home, is not only a believer in God's sovereignty, but you know, a table pounding, insisting on it, believer of God's sovereignty, um, which, is, which is fun. Um, but uh, I, I wanna go through this anyways, just on the off chance that's not the case, but also too, I think that the more we can kinda see this from scripture, the better it is on our own souls. Um, this is a doctrine I think that we can easily affirm and so easily practically deny. Um, so we're gonna spend some time kinda going through this in scripture and I'll, I'll uh, explain that a little bit more in a second. Well, let's define it first. Um, there are a number of definitions out there on what it means to be sovereign. Um, I haven't really found too many that I love, and so I, I'm respectfully submitting my own. Um, hopefully it works, but um, so what the, the, the definition in your notes is God's, act, God's sovereignty is God's active control over everything in existence, including the actions of responsible moral agents in which he is implementing what he unchangeably determined should occur before he created the world. So God's active control over everything in existence, including the actions of responsible moral agents, in which he is implementing what he unchangeably determined should occur before the creation of the world. So to break that down into three parts, God's active control over everything in existence. I love, uh, there's a Piper quote here I wanna read. Um, God is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. Nothing can successively stop any act or any event or design or purpose that God intends to certainly bring about. Um, but this is more than just his ability to do anything. He's not just able to do anything. God is actively in control 
of all of that, uh, including, second part, the actions of responsible moral agents. So a moral agent, a responsible moral agent, is someone who uh, is able to recognize right from wrong and is able to be held accountable for doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, that's what a moral agent is. We, all human beings, are able to do that. We're able to distinguish right from wrong, and we are able to be held account for what we choose or choose not to do. God is so God's sovereignty does not is not limited to our agency. Um, and then, lastly, in which he's implementing what he unchangeably determined should occur before he created the world. Nothing that happens in existence is random. Nothing is made up on the spot. God has predetermined what should occur, and he is carrying out that predetermination. Nothing can change his plan, and nothing can stop his will from occurring. So that is, at a nutshell, the definition of God's sovereignty. I'm going to pause there. Questions, comments, concerns, um, something you feel I missed in that definition? Anything at all? I'll take it. Wow, indeed, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. All right, so let's dig into biblical proofs. Uh, if you are looking at your notes, you'll notice that there are a bunch of headers and a whole bunch of scriptures under each header. Um, we are going to look at them all. Um, so if you want to follow along, cool. I'm not going to go that slow. Uh, there's a lot to cover. Uh, so more power to you, but good luck. Um, and I, I think there's a couple of things I want to say. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but over the years, I've had umpteen number of people explain the sovereignty of God um, in an attempt to prove it biblically. Uh, some are more effective than others. Some uh, uh, do a great job. Sometimes it's a little more poor. You can argue on philosophical grounds. You can argue on exegetical grounds. You can look at a couple of big texts. You can look at a bunch of smaller texts. I think the most effective way that I found, at least, is really to sort of just let the, speak, the scriptures speak for themselves and to show the amazing breadth of what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. Um, and so we're going to do that. We're going to sort of look at God's sovereignty over different aspects of creation. But there is a flow of thought to this. And the first thing that I want to start with is God as creator. I have found that this is something where I wish people started here more. Um, because when you, when you start with God as creator, which aside from a few heresies in the history of the church, this has been universally acknowledged. God is the creator of everything. Um, when you start there, and then you start to notice the passages in the scriptures that say that God created everything for a purpose, I think a, a picture starts emerging. This is not, again, God was not sitting you know, pre-creation and going, you know what would be really cool to make? A porcupine. That sounds awesome. Let's make that. Like, th there, there's, a, there's a purpose to everything that he is doing. Everything is designed for an end. It's all intended to bring him glory. It's all intended for his purposes. And so when you start with God as creator, and then you recognize that everything is made for a purpose, it's really not that hard to take the next step and see the creator of all of those things accomplishing the thing he set out to do in the first place, actively controlling the thing that he made to accomplish its ends. Um, and so I think we should start with not only God as creator, but that he made everything for his purposes, which is the first texts that you have in your notes there. So uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, for there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Uh, Romans 11.36, from him and through him and to him, this is a purpose statement, are all things. Uh, Colossians 1.15-16, 
He is the image of the invisible God. This is referring to Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And for him. So God created everything for a purpose, namely for himself, for his glory. Everything is designed to function and interact in that certain way to bring him glory. Now we have a number of passages, this is the next point, uh, that describe God as being able to do absolutely anything he pleases, uh, aka executing his will with the creation that he made for himself. Um, so uh, starting with Psalm 135, verse 6, we'll come back to this one later. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Now notice the seas and the deeps, this is not a statement of God's Ability. This is a statement of God's execution. Uh, Psalm 115, verses 2 to 3. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Daniel 4, 35. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46, 8 to 10, we actually looked at this one last week. Uh, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, this passage is interesting because it links God's ability to declare the future with his control over events. God is not looking forward to seeing what is happening or what will happen and telling us. He's telling us what he is planning to do before he does it. That's when God predicts the future. It's not a, this is what's going to occur. Let me tell you about it. It's, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Let me tell you in advance. So God's creator, God it makes has made everything for a purpose, namely himself, and here is God actively in control of what he has made. Um, and if God, um, um, if God is actively in control of everything that he has made, we should expect to see various passages talk about that control in various spheres of life, and that's exactly what we do see. Um, so the next few points in your outline, which I should have kept a copy for myself, um, the next few points of that outline, we're gonna start just looking at, thank you, <laughs> Look how helpful we are. Um, all right, so the, the next few points in the outline, this is God ultimately uh, being shown to be sovereign in various spheres of life. So those previous passages were more uh, broader picture, and now we're going to start zeroing in on specific spheres or activities in life. So the first one is over seemingly random events. Uh, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no such thing as luck. No random toss of the dice. Um, over nature, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, or the first part of verse 3. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of, the God, of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
universe is a bad translation. Um, it's more literally, uh, he upholds all things. It's literally what the text says. All things are upheld by Jesus. That word upheld is fetra. Uh, it means to carry or bear, um, and it's in the present tense. So Jesus is pictured here as continuously holding up creation. And I think the intention of the writer of Hebrews is that Jesus is actively and constantly keeping everything in existence together. And if he were to stop, it would all fall apart like a ton of bricks. So there's nothing that is happening right now that God is not literally in control of, literally holding together. Psalm 135, uh, we looked at verse 6. Let's add verse 7 to it. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, it is, uh, it is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the sea, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So notice God doing what he pleases, but now the link between him doing what he pleases and the existence of simple natural events like weather patterns. Did it rain today? It's God doing what he pleased. Is it sunny? Because that's what he determined should occur. <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, Craig, you said two part. That was three. So I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yes, no, that was, uh, <clears throat> I, I will say that's a, probably a little bit out of scope. I would say that, yes, I mean, maybe, maybe focusing in on the second part of your question. And for the folks at home who probably couldn't hear that, uh, Craig was ultimately asking what implications does all of this talk of God being sovereign over uh, nature, what does that have in terms of climate change? Does it, does it mean that God, that there is no such thing as man-made climate change? And then how does that ultimately translate into our evangelism? Um, we're going to look a great deal at um, the, sort of the message of the apostles uh, in practice as they evangelize. And yes, this, generally speaking, starts with God as creator uh, and our obligations to him. Um, I think there's there's any number of ways to broach that conversation, and if uh, you happen to be having a conversation with people on this particular subject, on climate change or whatever else, you know that's that's a perfectly solid transition. I'm not sure that I would, you know, recommend that that would be the starting place. Um, I think it um, potentially is a really complex place to start, and I think there are simpler ways of doing it. But I think it's a perfectly fine way of transitioning into the the topic of God as Creator and ultimately what our obligations to him are, which is fundamental to evangelism. Um, but the rest of it, maybe we talk offline. Yeah. Yes, yes, God ordains the ends and he ordains the means. 
which you are stealing one of my lines later, but thank you. It's totally fine. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, I don't mean to punt, Craig, but I think, yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's some truth to that, for sure. All right. Um, so that is, that is nature. Uh, let's go to animals. Uh, Matthew 10, 29, Jesus saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So th Jesus is making the argument of God's uh, total control over things here. It certainly includes the animal kingdom, um, and he is showing that he is in control even over small and worthless things. That's what he means by are not two sparrows sold for a penny. Um, when a little bird drops out of a dead tree in the deserted mountain in Tibet, it's because God determined that's when that bird should fall. Jesus' point here. Um, sparrows, however, are small and insignificant. Nations, on the other hand, much bigger. Uh, it's in the opposite end of that scale. Uh, animal, small, human kingdoms, big, and God is sovereign over kingdoms as well. Second uh, Chronicles 26, the Lord said, this is actually uh, the words of Jehoshaphat um, um, to a gathering of the people of Israel. Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, O God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So we've got a clear statement in the middle of this that God rules all, uh, rules over the kingdoms and the nations. And then we have a practical um, um, example of that in driving out the inhabitants of Canaan during Israel's conquest of the promised land. God set the time for the duration of Israel's um, uh, slavery in Egypt. He set the time for when they would leave. He was ultimately using Israel's conquest of Canaan as a judgment on the people of those lands. Uh, it was all part of God's sovereign administration over the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, Acts 17, 26. Um, there we read, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined their appointed time, so when, they would live, and the boundaries of their habitation. Rome had a hard time conquering the British Isles for, I want to say, a couple centuries. Um, that's because God determined they had a hard time conquering the British Isles. You know, he determined the appointed times for each kingdom, each group, and the boundaries that they occupied. Psalm 33, 11 to 10, uh, kind of a negative statement. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Or my favorite, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So two things to note there. Number one, God is clearly in control of the king. That's the most basic reading of Proverbs 21. Um, but I think the 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 actual comparison he makes is instructive. Um, the word for channel likely refers to irrigation ditches. Um, and so the picture is sort of just as a, father, a farmer, not a father, a farmer can you know, go to a river and dig an irrigation ditch and water his plants and have it go wherever he ultimately wants it to go. In the same way, 
God can take the heart of a king and make it go where he wants it to go. That's an odd picture, isn't it? Of all the ways that God could have um, explained that he controls the heart of a king, an irrigation ditch is kind of an odd one. And I think the reason why that's picked out is because it shows not only control, but it also shows planning. You know, you don't just willy-nilly make an irrigation ditch. This is something that you have intended to do for a while. It takes a lot of planning and a lot of thought. God is actively controlling the king, not just where he wants him to go in a moment, but where he has long determined the king ought to go. God is sovereign even over human decisions. Uh, Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9, God of the Proverbs, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And then 19.21, same book, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Uh, and just to add a cherry on top of these verses, uh, there are some big, giant, sweeping passages in Scripture that describe God as ultimately in control. Um, Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Whatever happens, happens because God works it, and he works it um, according to his plans and purposes. Romans 8.28, we all know this one, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So big, big sweeping texts talking about God's absolute control over everything that happens. There is nothing, Romans 8.28, nothing that exists, nothing that occurs, that God is not actively weaving together for a purpose. In this case, though, the purpose is your benefit, namely your sanctification, your conformity to the image of Christ, which is what he makes clear in the rest of Romans uh, chapter 8. So let's, uh, let's talk about God's sovereignty over salvation. I mean, we just looked broadly at God's sovereignty over uh, uh, existence itself, everything is being made for his purpose. We looked at his sovereignty over individual spheres of life. And so very much in keeping with that, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign in terms of who comes to saving faith, when they do, and how they do. Um, but before I jump into that, let's just pause. Any other questions on the... 30 or so texts we just looked at. Uh, any concerns, objections, anything you want to go back to? Was that clear, helpful? Cool. Anything from anyone? No? Cool. All right, so I'm going to do this a couple of times today, but I put some John MacArthur quotes in your notes. Um, as we start talking about God choosing who he would save, um, I think MacArthur summarizes a number of, of good texts here. Uh, the doctrine of divine election is explicitly taught throughout scripture. For example, in the New Testament epistles alone, we learn that all believers are chosen of God, Titus 1.1. We were predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, uh, Ephesians 1.11. Uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Also Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5. MacArthur goes on to say, Note that those verses explicitly state that God's sovereign choice is made according to the kind intention of his will and according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. It is not for any reason external to himself. He is not subject to others' decisions. The passages that MacArthur is citing here paint a picture of a God who chooses. 
Um, Romans 9 makes this point very forcefully. Uh, it is God's choice, not our choice, who, that determines who will be saved. Romans 9, 10 to 18. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of, because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, so that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Salvation is solely according to God's will, and not according to anything individual or special about us. It is ultimately his choice. Um, we have a couple of texts next in your notes there that describe not only God choosing who will be saved, but that he is the one who ultimately brings those about. Uh, John 1, 11 to 13, says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 13, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now the way John constructs this sentence in the Greek, that phrase in verse 13, who were born, temporarily, temporarily occurs prior to faith. Those who are born of, there, there are those who are born of God, and then they believe. God takes the first decisive action. Uh, Romans 6, 7, uh, uh, 17 to 18, Paul says, But thanks be to God, thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So why is it that I became obedient from the heart? Thanks be to God, not me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31 is one of my favorites. Um, it says, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. So not wise, not powerful, not noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world, it's the opposite of wise, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring, up, to, bring to nothing things that are. I'm pausing there for a second. You, congregation, not many of you are wise, not many of you are powerful, not many of you are noble. Is that simply because the word of God happens to be popular amongst that crowd of people? No. God chose. He chose the foolish. He chose the weak. He chose the weak and despised. And a purpose in those choices. But nonetheless, he chose, and that is who is coming to saving faith. And he did it, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And in verse 30, why is it, just to kind of beat that horse, why is it that we are ultimately saved? It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, and this is maybe written over everything we're talking about today, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, so we see the direct tie between God choosing some and then the accomplishment of their salvation. Uh, it is not owing to us in any way. The Bible says this repeatedly. John 6, no one can come to me, says Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. You are unable to. John 6, same thing, different way. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Notice whose choice that is. We are unable to know the Father apart from the Son's disclosure of him. And so just in case these passages aren't enough, we're going to look at a couple from the book of Acts that describe God sovereignly saving people um, in that narrative text. So uh, Acts 11, uh, verse 18, it says, uh, this is, um, says, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is right after the first Gentiles have come to saving faith. Peter has preached the gospel to them, and they are, he is re- re- recounting what he has done to uh, the rest of the, the Jewish church. But the, but the, their, and their, their summary statement is, the Gentiles have been granted repentance. Uh, granted there is didomi. It means to give. He has given repentance to the Gentiles. There's a parallel text in Acts 5.31. It says, Peter, uh, talking of Jesus, he says, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant, same word, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God is the giver, and he does it in his timing. In fact, with Peter in Acts, Acts 10 or 11, this is not uh, you know, Cornelius coming to Peter and saying, I really, really want to be saved. This is God sending an angel to Cornelius, go to Peter. He does a specific vision with Peter to explain that this is okay and sends Peter ultimately to Cornelius. God arranged this exact situation when he wanted, and he was the one who granted to these Gentiles repentance. I think also, too, it's helpful to note just how offhandedly um, this summary statement is made. This is not, um, oh, my gosh, turns out God is sovereign. It's, oh, you came to saving faith? God gave you repentance. I mean, it's just built into their theology um, as, as they're describing this. Uh, Acts 13, 47 to 48, um, it says, For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Um, appointed is tasso. It's the, um, it means to, to set in place or to arrange. It's the same word used in Romans 13.1 where Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. If there's a government, God has put it in place. And here it's as many as and only those who God determined, set in place, appointed, arranged to come to saving faith, came to saving faith. Uh, Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So God is absolutely sovereign, and that includes the salvation of sinners. Questions? Comments?
I need a drink, so feel free. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it again. That's fine. All right. So misunderstandings and objections. Um, I'm going to go through these relatively quickly. Um, I, in my experience, as you're talking to folks about the sovereignty of God, there are a few tried and true objections that come up. Um, these are the four that I've encountered either personally the most or from you know, what I've read are some of the more common objections. Um, so just to kind of grow through them. Uh, the first one is that somehow God being sovereign makes him responsible for evil. Um, after all, if he's in control of everything, doesn't that also uh, make him in control of sin? does, but it doesn't make him responsible for it. Um, I'm going to read a, a longer MacArthur quote here. It's not a cop-out. Seminary professors do this too, but I'm going to read a longer quote. Uh, scripture says that when, this is also from MacArthur. Uh, scripture says that when God finished his creation, he saw everything and declared it very good. Many scriptures affirm that God is not the author of evil. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Or 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Or 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion. If these things are true, he cannot in any way be the author of evil. He goes on, it is helpful, I think, to understand that sin is not itself a thing created. Sin is neither substance, being, spirit, nor matter. It is not proper technically, to think of sin as something that was created. Sin is simply a lack of moral perfection in a fallen creature. Fallen creatures themselves bear full responsibility for their sin, and all evil in the universe emanates from the sins of fallen creatures. God is certainly sovereign over evil. There is a sense in which it is proper even to say that evil is part of his eternal decree. He planned for it. It did not take him by surprise. It is not an interruption of his eternal plan. He declared the end from the beginning, and he is still working all things for his good pleasure. But God's role with regard to evil is never its author. It's a good quote. Uh, second objection or misunderstanding. Uh, God cannot be sovereign if we want to argue that people should be held accountable for their actions. You need free will to be held accountable for the things that you do. And this objection usually portrays God's sovereignty as if um, it makes uh, life a giant video game where God is playing all the characters, um, and if he's controlling all the characters, then I am not responsible for what he makes me do. Fifty years ago, I probably would have used a puppet analogy, but today it's a video game. Um, so, so what do we say to this objection? Um, and I think it's, it's fairly simple. The Bible doesn't describe this at all. It doesn't describe human beings as puppets or video game characters. It describes us as people who know right from wrong, people who choose to do the wrong thing, and people who are rightly held accountable when we do. Um, if you commit adultery, that's because you lusted after someone, you wanted to commit the act, you made arrangements to do it, you desired it, you chose it, and did it. That's how the Bible talks about human sin. Uh, James 1, 14 to 15, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when that lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Or Romans 2, 8 to 9. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
So yes, you are 100% accountable for what you do. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. But it also talks about God being in control of those evil things that you do. Um, tried and true verse, Genesis uh, 50, 20. This is Joseph talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Or perhaps the, well, not perhaps, the greatest sin in human history, the murder of Jesus, Peter says in his Pentecostal sermon in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So they did it. They're responsible for it. Peter's literally accusing them of murdering God. But it was also something that God was 100% in control of. He determined when it would occur. He determined how it would occur. And he determined through whom it would occur. So the Bible teaches that, we're, that God is in control but that we are also accountable and responsible. God orchestrates what happens, but we are not puppets. We're not video game characters. And this, this can seem like it's a tension, and that's fine. It's not a tension that the Bible perfectly resolves for us, but it is ultimately something that the Bible, I think, clearly teaches and that we are responsible to believe. Our job is not to try to work out every ontological detail on how this works. Our job is to trust God's revelation of these issues in the scriptures. All right, so third uh, objection or misunderstanding, if God is sovereign, doesn't that mean it doesn't matter what we do or don't do? Uh, the core idea here is that if God is sovereign, then whatever he wants to happen is going to happen, and it doesn't really need me. I'm not really important to it. You can do, you know, God will do what God does. Um, and Dan brought this up earlier. That's totally not true. God ordains the ends, and God ordains the means, and he ordained to bring things about through us. This objection, um, and, and really God's sovereignty in general, throughout Christian history has been used repeatedly to justify our lack of faithfulness and or spiritual laziness. Um, but it should not be the case. And a proper understanding of God's sovereignty does not excuse us from action. It motivates us and empowers us to do so in the first place. Romans 10:14, Paul asks how anyone can be saved uh, without someone preaching the gospel to them. There needs to be preaching. So we go, we preach, and we, we preach knowing that if we're obeying, it's because God ultimately is working in us to obey. And we preach knowing that if there's going to be any fruit whatsoever, if there's going to be any persecution or limits on that persecution, it is because God is ultimately in control. Our understanding of his sovereignty doesn't excuse our inaction. It doesn't result in our inaction. It gives us confidence to do ultimately what he's called us to do. And when we lack that confidence, when we lack that boldness, we get to pray to a sovereign God who we know can help us do what he's called us to. Uh, this last one is complicated, but God being sovereign makes him a monster for choosing some people to go to hell. The objection here is that if God is sovereign, then he is actively choosing not to save some people that he could otherwise regenerate, grant faith to, etc. And that makes him monstrously unloving for allowing some people to go to hell that he could have prevented. But, they argue, if God isn't sovereign, if he's not in control, if he's not controlling the decisions that people make, then he is saving everyone he can. And he's not an unloving monster. He's saving everyone he can, everyone who's willing. 
Um, that sounds logical, but it breaks down pretty quickly. Um, and unless you want to argue that God is actually incapable of violating my free will, if God has set up a system in existence in which he is letting people make decisions and is not influencing those decisions, that means he could save me, but he's still choosing not to. Um, God still knowingly created Satan. He still allowed the fall. He still created people knowing that they would ultimately reject him and go to hell. If God doesn't want people to go to hell, he could have chosen to not create us in the first place. Ultimately, there, there's no, this objection sort of paints a false picture of God. It wants to, it wants to argue that God is loving, and therefore uh, it, wants to, it wants to essentially say that he can't possibly be involved with the decision um, to send people to hell. And that's just, it's just not true. Everything in the Bible says that everything that's going to happen, including the eternal suffering of the lost, is designed by God. It brings God glory. It is intentional. It's not an accident. Um, you can't really get around this. The only way you can get around this is if you wanted to argue that God isn't sovereign, God can't see the future, God can't change who we are, uh, sin surprised God, and now he's just damage-controlling damage creation. Like, that, that God, you know, has no guilt or responsibility whatsoever for someone going to hell. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, you know, the, the, is in control. Hell is something that was planned from the beginning. Um, and he is choosing who ultimately he will save and those he won't. That doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. It doesn't mean that he is uh, you know, a monster for sending people there because frankly, the Bible says everything I just said and that God is love, that he is perfectly wise and that everything he does is fun foundationally and fundamentally good. There is no evil in God. The Bible says both and we are obligated to believe both. And we can either go off our own fallen impressions and logic and understandings, or we can do what the scriptures tells us and believe what the scriptures tells us. Uh, Romans 9, 19 to 23, Paul says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make some out of the same lump for one vessel and honor, uh, for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, whom he has prepared beforehand for glory? Another MacArthur quote is helpful here. Above all, we must not conclude that God is unjust because he chooses to bestow grace on some, but not to everyone. God is never to be measured by what seems fair to human judgment. Are we so foolish to assume that we who are fallen, sinful creatures have a higher standard of what is right than an unfallen and infinitely, eternally holy God? <laughs> what kind of pride is that? In Psalm 50, 21, God says, You thought I was just like you, but God is not like us, nor can he be held to human standards. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And this one is hard. This objection is hard. But fundamentally, it goes back to the Bible says God is in control. The Bible says that God chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And that God is good. God is fair. God is loving.
Bible says both. And our job is to stand under that and not attempt to stand over that. All right, so I'm going to close with just beginning to broach the realities of what it means that God is sovereign on our evangelism. Um, we're going to see this in the next couple of classes. You'll see evangel- a sovereignty of God woven into everything that I say um, because God's sovereignty over the salvation of sinners changes everything. I want to make this point really clear. If God were not sovereign, if Jason Kenney could muster up faith, if uh, Dan could make an argument that was determinative in whether or not I came to saving faith, we are monsters for our failure to evangelize. We are monsters for how we live our lives. We should overthrow the United States today. We should install a theocracy. We should mandate the Bible not just taught in schools. Uh, and, and anything remotely contrary to it should be burned. Uh, if unbelieving Jason can believe with just the right argument and the right information and the right upbringing, then we should make sure that everything that exists is 100% of the truth so that I'm entirely raised up in it and surrounded by it. We should do that tomorrow if I can muster up saving faith. Um, if, if I could make an argument and save my sister, uh, again, like, what, what kind of monster am I for not trying constantly? You had better preach all the time in that case. I mean, you stopped to eat? How many people could you have preached the gospel to in that hour that you had lunch? <laughs> you went on a family vacation? You jerk. How many was was Disneyland was Disneyland worth the, you know, thousands of people you could have been preaching to that week that you failed to do? I mean, if if God is not sovereign over salvation, I don't know how we sleep at night. I think the implications are terrifying. But because he is sovereign, we don't approach the work this way. We approach our task with confidence that all of God's elect will come to faith. We approach our task knowing that our efforts, whether bold or meek, whether powerfully persuasive or feeble, can still be used to bear fruit. We approach the task knowing that when we pray for something, whether it's boldness for ourselves or salvation for our family, that those prayers can be answered. We approach the task knowing that while persecution may come, it will only come to the extent and duration that he wills. I'm going to end on this quote on Packer. Packer says, What then are we to say about the suggestion that a hearty faith in the absolute sovereignty of God is inimical or, or an opposition to evangelism? We are bound to say that anyone who makes this suggestion thereby shows he has simply failed to understand what the doctrine of divine sovereignty means. Not only does it undergird evangelism and uphold the evangelist by creating a hope of success that could not otherwise be entertained, it also teaches us to bind together preaching and prayer and it makes us bold and confident before men. And I'm sorry, as it makes us bold and confident before men, so it makes us humble and importunate, which means annoyingly persistent, before God. God's sovereignty undergirds everything that we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that you are a God who is in control. We thank you. We praise you. And we pray, Lord, for bold spirits this week, loving spirits this week, Spirits who seek your glory and the good of others, particularly in their salvation, Lord. And I pray that you would grant us boldness to look and preach and pray, and that you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.